found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. I was talking through with Bob Crane, <clears throat> and you know, we've talked about transitions and things that are going on, and I'm thinking that maybe in two years we'll be able to finish Matthew chapter, you know, <laughs> the book of Matthew. So. <laughs> fake news, fake news. <laughs> Man, the abuse. Um, as I've shared in the past, um, I have a blotter on my desk, clear blotter that I put everybody's picture under, and that when I do come into the office, I, that's one of the first things I look at, and I just pray for everybody that's on there. That just reminds me of who to pray for. And I'm absolutely astounded by how many people in this church do not want me to pray for them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, it really is. It's just amazing, you know, um, because... I, have, I do not have your pictures. And so, but if you do want me to pray for you, um, just take a, have somebody take a picture of you, take a selfie, although selfies never look as good as somebody else taking a picture for you. Um, go ahead and just send that to me. I'm not going to put it on the website, so you don't have to worry about that. It's just right there on the blotter, and I just pray for, for people in the church. So... Um, and if you don't do it, I will take it very personally that you don't think that I can pray for you. Um, and speaking of prayer, every Sunday morning at um, 9 o'clock, there's a group of us that are here praying for the church, praying for one another, and would love to have you just join us. If you're not doing anything at, at 9 o'clock, have you come and join us in prayer. As I mentioned, our scripture is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. But before we get to that, I mentioned that we're going to mention the baptism four times. <laughs> Jeff, would you take over number three? Yes, I can take over number three. So just in case you Google this thing, you may get several answers. Okay, so answer number one may be Christine's dog grooming service. Those are the folks who lived in our home before we did. So that's the correct answer. Easy to get to. Orchard turns into Minkler. Minkler dead ends into 126. You take a right, you are the first farmhouse on the left. So that's pretty simple. So two turns from Aurora. You're coming down 47 for those out in the country on the west side. Come down 47, turn left, or turn left over 126. And cross 71. And Kathy's going to have some balloons out uh, at, on our, at the front so you know what the house is. Um, so that's the way it comes. The address is 8222 State Route 126, which is also known as Schoolhouse Road. So it could be Schoolhouse Road, it could be Christine's dog room service, it could be State Route 126. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to look for the balloons. But if you do take Minkler and Dead End at 126, it's the first farmhouse on the left, but it's about a mile down. Half a mile. Half a mile? Okay. Okay, go ahead and read Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21 at your tables. It's on the sermon notes, it's in your iPhone or your Android, 
It's in your, it's, you know, if you have a hard Bible, I mean an actual paper Bible, that, that works real well also, folks. So take a minute and just read that. To achieve success in our society, one of the things that they will say in a lot of different ways, but it's basically the same thing, is to have power. To have power. In business, in politics, even in social areas, and the truth be told, in the church. Power is a key way of trying to get things changed the way you want them. Um, and we should keep in mind that the push to get power by certain groups, you know, for their rights is not about equality as much as it is about gaining power. At the same time, if you take a look at what's going on in our society uh, today and throughout history, the amount of power that has just corrupted and to the point where all kinds of people have been abused and used by people in power and the misuse of that. It seems in every arena of life, people will play the game in order to get close to those in power in order that they can feel some kind of significance or they can be able to have some kind of influence on those with power. The problem is when people do achieve power or the power they were after, they become self-important. When I have a certain level of power, I now I become self-important, the all-wise one, the all-knowing one, uh, and in their own eyes. And not only that, they begin to abuse the people that they have power over. We see it throughout the scripture. We see it throughout history. We see it just today. And I don't think there's actually anything wrong with Christians rising to places of power and using that power properly. But there's a great danger for Christians to gain and use that power according to the world's example, not according to God's example. And so when people do receive power and use it and according to the world's example, there's a lot of abuses. Because there's a lot of abuses that would have never taken place if they had used the example of Jesus instead of the example of our culture. Um, and according to what we see in Matthew 12, 15 through 21, we sort of see the opposite of the power that people will proclaim. And we see instead the servant power of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this, we're going to find the example of Jesus that we as believers should be following and not trying to emulate what society says. Because success for the Christian does not come through attaining positions of worldly power, even though God may put us in sometimes those positions. Success for the Christian is having being a faithful servant to an all-powerful God. And I think we sometimes forget that. That my responsibility, first and foremost, is to be a faithful servant to an all-powerful God instead of trying to exert power for myself. And it really becomes down to an issue of whose power do you trust? Do you trust God's power? Or do you trust the power that you think you can achieve on your own? 
Jesus never attained any position of worldly power. He never sought such a position. Instead, he was God's humble, merciful, loving, and obedient servant. And those are words that we like to hear about other people, but we usually don't like to put on our own label. It's nice to know that somebody else is going to serve us today. It's nice that somebody else is going to be humble. It's nice that somebody else is going to be obedient. It's nice, all those things. But when it comes to us, I don't have to love that person. Somebody else is already serving me, so I don't have to serve. Somebody else is already doing that. And so we absolve ourselves of those responsibilities instead of saying, wait, if that's the way Christ was, isn't that the way we all should be? Isn't that the model of behavior for everyone? So I find this in Matthew um, 12, verses 15 through 21. And I'm going to read it from the message. I very rarely read anything from the message. Um, my favorite version is the English Standard Version. Some people like the New Living Translation. Other people like the NRV. Some people like the King James. Some people like the New King James. People like the, you know, the ASV. You, whatever version is fine. The message is not a version. Okay? It's a story. But Jesus, knowing that they were out to get him, moved on. A lot of people followed him, and he healed them all. He also cautioned them to keep, in, keep it quiet following guidelines set down by Isaiah. Look well at my hand-picked servant. I love him so much. Take such delight in him. I've placed my spirit on him. He'll decree justice to the nations, but he won't yell. He won't raise his voice. There'll be no commotion in the streets. He won't walk over anyone's feelings. He won't push you into a corner. Before you know it, his justice will triumph. The mere sound of his name will signal hope, even among far-off unbelievers. The mere sound of his name will signal hope. You know, that is just a powerful thought, that even just the name of Jesus will signal hope. Um, Matthew 12, 15 sets us back in the context of this passage. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders have been have risen in opposition to him because he would not follow their traditions. And as we saw last week, the Pharisees had substituted the law of Moses with their own made-up rules and regulations to define what things should look like based on their opinion not based on the scripture. Um, and so Jesus attacked that. And in addition, God's desire and the very purpose of the law was compassion. That was the purpose of the law, to show compassion and, and not ritual. And furthermore, Jesus said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. So at this point, the Pharisees are just totally done with Jesus. And so they're ready now to just have them attacked. And so they go to the Herodians. Now, 
if there was two groups of people that were more diametrically opposed, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were focusing on God's law. The Herodians said, no, we don't want Jesus to be king. We want Herod to be king. And so they were just at complete opposites. The only thing they had in common is that they both wanted Jesus God. And so much of the same thing happens today. So much of the same thing happens today. And it's amazing what strange bedfellows people will make when they are against something instead of for something. And the amazing thing that I find about all the stuff that goes on today is that people talk about what they're against instead of what they're for. And so we just hear this constantly going on. Um, so here, where the, the, the Pharisees should have rejoiced over the good things that Jesus had done, that he just healed this man's hand, then of all this taking place, instead, they condemn him. Um, and so he left because his time wasn't yet. He's on a time frame. And it's not time for him to be exalted. It is time for him to be a humble servant. And so, or a compassionate servant. And so in 1215, it continues. It says, and many followed him and he healed them all. That just blows me away. He's there. The Pharisees have just, are trying to kill him. They're conspiring with the Herodians. Jesus has left. And what's the first thing he does with the people that are following him? Healing them. Now let me ask you a question. In the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your trials, in the midst when you feel like you're being persecuted, in the midst of everything else, is your first thought, how can I go heal somebody else? That just blows me away. That that's the compassionate side of Jesus Christ. That's the compassionate side of leadership. That's the compassionate side of servanthood. That's the compassionate side of ministry. That's the compassionate side of what it means to be a believer. In the midst of what we're going through, are we also considered, are we willing to be healing agents for others to point them to the healing power of Jesus Christ? Um, so though, and it, Jesus doesn't make any demands on them. They're following him, they're hurting, and he just begins healing them. Um, and then in 12, 16 and 17, and he warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled saying. Now they'll give, you know, you can read all kinds of commentaries and they'll give you 54 different reasons why Jesus told them not to tell anybody. But basically, it boils down to that it was what the prophet Isaiah said. Um, you know, that it's not his time. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So before he can do anything, he's still serving God. So you just see this humble servant in Jesus. And again, humility in our culture is not something that is celebrated. It's celebrated in Mother Teresa. 
It's celebrated in certain people, religious leaders. But when it comes to the actual person saying, you know what? The one character quality that I would like more than anything else is humility. I don't think people are lined up to, to get that one. Because humility says, it doesn't, it's not my way. Humility says, I don't have to be right. Humility says, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to take care of you. I'm here to be obedient to my God. I'm here to be obedient to Christ. So all pride is removed, and instead it's replaced with humility. Um, Jesus' interest was not his own glory. And humility is not weakness, but really it's power under control. If I'm serving Christ, and Christ is in me, the greatest power on earth is living within me. And it's in that humility that it's under control. So he was a humble servant in 12, 16, and 17. And again, in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Now, if Jesus could come from heaven to not do his will, but to do the will of the one who sent him, I think we should be able to say, you know, not my will, God, but what's your will in this? I mean, what a beautiful characteristic and picture we have of Jesus Christ. And that really is the heart of a servant. Um, being, being equal to God, but made himself no reputation and took on the form of a servant and was found in fashion as a man and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. In the midst of everything else that is going on, you see this unbelievable oasis in the middle of a desert of who Jesus Christ is and the hope he brings to us. Um, Jesus did not just happen into human history. He came because he was sent by God the Father as an obedient chosen servant. So Matthew 12, 18. Look at my servant and whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Look at my servant. Um, and again, this is sort of a paraphrase of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, which stresses the nature and purpose of God's chosen servant being sent to mankind. So you can read Isaiah 42 to get what is being said here. And the first verse of the quote expresses or stresses this relationship as being a servant of God. But the word that is used there is not like servant, like we think of servant. It's like a son. This is my son. And a servant, and it was a servant that was sort of focused on the adoption. And I can remember when I started looking at what this word adoption meant. An adopted child had more rights than a child of birth. So when I was talking to Micah one time, and I said, you as a child, adopted child, have more rights than if you were my naturally born son. That according to Jewish law, I could disown my own. I, I know. That's, that's, 
There's some things about the Jewish law that still makes sense, don't they? Um, <laughs> but as an adopted child, you could never be disowned. You could never be disowned. And so there's just that sense of this connection that Jesus is making about this. Um, and so Jesus came. He said, this is my son, beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, so you have this unbelievable relationship. And then you have the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Um, and then it said, he came in accordance with God's will to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. Now, again, this would have blown up the Pharisees' theology because the Pharisees were ethnocentric and believed that God was for the Jews only. And it's amazing to me how much of that same mentality goes on today. And it may not go on in the same way. But I find it interesting that if we did not believe in that way, I think evangelism would have on a whole new different meaning. We'd start witnessing. We'd start sharing faith with those who aren't like us. We'd start telling people about God to people who aren't like us. But there's a tendency to just sort of categorize that which we feel comfortable with to be things that are like us. And so even though we may not be ethnocentric, in many ways we behave as ethnocentric. Jesus came as God the Father's chosen servant who is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he came with a message of hope for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he came as a peaceful servant. That's, again, what's amazing. Verse 19, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He had all kinds of confrontations, but you never saw him raise his voice. The only time recorded in the scripture where we see it at all is when he's caring for his father's house. And he turns over the tables and said, you will not turn my home or my father's house into a den of thieves. But when they attacked him, okay, he didn't attack back. And he was the one person who called, could have called down an army of angels and said, you know what, I'm really tired of you people. I am really, really tired. And so I think today, we're just going to eliminate you. We're just going to destroy you. But he never did that. He didn't get into shouting debates with them. He didn't get into these arguments. And yet everything we watch on TV is who can exert the most authority, the most power, but not the most humility, not the most wisdom, not the most, you know, caring. I, I can remember... It took a long time for Gwen to really understand the home that I grew up in. Um, and, but when we grew up, whenever our family was there, it was, 
it was dysfunction at its best. And I'd say that in two ways. One, it was really dysfunctional, but yet it was really enjoyable, so it was dysfunction at its best. Um, but then there was, you know, in our house, nobody listened to anybody. We just argued, and whoever could talk the fastest, talk the loudest, and eat the fastest won. Um, and it was, I mean, every time it got together, and I had one grandfather, step-grandfather, was there, and that was really the crazy stuff. My, I had like three sets of grandparents and they were all there. And so there was craziness making and they were all trying to get the other person's goat. You know, they would see how can we get the other person angry. And so I had my one step-grandfather, we said who would just carry a spoon, stir the pot and then just watch it boil over. Um, and it really didn't matter. And I can remember so many times being the center of all their arguing. You know, either I had long hair, or I got in trouble with the police, or I got drunk, or, you know, whatever it is. And I just sort of became, and I could just think, okay, which grandparent's going to be on my side today? Um, and it was just crazy, and I have no idea why. Oh, quarreling and crying out. <laughs> I knew there was a reason, because that just was my house. And so... And so I, could, I had this unbelievable temper that I got from my family. We were in Michigan, and my parents were there, and we were talking about temper, and my dad started telling the story of his dad's temper and his grandfather's temper, and Gwen looked at him and says, well, then he really comes by this naturally, doesn't he? And she goes, yeah. And the amazing thing, though, is that whatever we come by naturally, God can change. Whatever behavior we have learned, we can unlearn. And we can relearn. So we sometimes think we're victims of life. Well, when we say that, we don't believe in the power of God to transform a life. We're just sort of helpless. We're, you know, we're fatalists. God can't do anything, and of course God can. And if he can't do anything... And we really don't believe he can do anything. And we don't believe in the power of prayer. We don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform people. We don't believe in his word to change people. We don't believe in those things. There really is no reason for us to be here. There really is no reason for us to be here. The only reason we're here then is to satisfy some guilty conscience. Because if we walk out of here saying, I still have no hope. I still have no understanding. I still have no relationship with Christ, if I still have no opportunity to grow an understanding of that, then the question is, why are we here? Why are we here? And so that's, Jesus came in order to give us that hope. And so in verse 20, he's a sympathetic servant. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not pull out until he leads justice to victory. And again, this is figurative language describing Jesus' compassionate, sympathetic, empathetic nature. A reed could be used for many purposes, including making music. Shepherds would make a flute instrument with a reed, and they would just play it. But if it got wet, if it got bent, it was no good, so they would just toss it away. And when a wick went down so much, it wouldn't hold enough oil, so they would remove it and put in a new one. And Jesus is saying... That's what would be naturally would be done with people. When they're beat up, bruised, burdened, sinners, 
the Pharisees would just throw them away. But Jesus is never going to do that. This is a picture of hurting people. The ones everyone else steps on, discards, throws away. The bruised reeds that don't play the tune. Uh, this is the weak, the powerless, the helpless. Ones destroyed by sin and suffering. Those bowed down, you know, bowed down with, with burdens. The ones who feel they're unworthy. The ones without spiritual resources. The whole world of trampled, despised people who feel that there's no hope. And that's who Jesus said he would never harm. And then he tells us that we're to be like that also. Because these are the kind of people that the powerful walk over. These are the kind of people that the Pharisees would walk over. These are the kind of people that the religious would walk over. The broken people. And so they would instead look for the ones who could help them in their agenda. And Jesus says, no. We came to serve them. Instead of throwing them away, he says the opposite. I've come to strengthen you. I'll pick up the reed and play a melody through it that has never been played before. I will light that wick and it will show a light that is brighter than any light that has ever been shown before. That's the kind of Savior we serve. And that's the kind of Savior we need to represent to people who look at us and say, really, is there any hope? Because his name alone should bring hope. And then in verse 20 it says, The day will come when he sends forth justice into victory. He's saying that ultimately the right will win. In spite of all the persecution, the difficulty, the rejection, the hurt, in the end, Jesus is going to win. The problem is we're playing in the game. We're playing in the game. We're not watching the game saying, okay, I know that it's not, this isn't a replay of the Bears game yesterday, and I know that the Bears are going to win. We're in the game, and we're getting beat up, and we're getting bruised, and we're getting tackled, and we're getting hit, and we're getting hurt, and we're saying, are we ever going to win? You know, are we ever going to win this game? And Jesus says, yes. Yes. And that's the hope that we have to hold on to. Jesus came with genuine sympathy and concern for these people. He came to heal the sick, seek and save the lost, to care for those who couldn't care for themselves, comfort those who were mourning, cheer the fearful, reassure doubters, feed the famished, and pardon the sins of the repentant. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Doesn't matter what we're going through. He's there for us. And not only is he there for us, in the midst of what we're going through, can we do what Jesus did right in the beginning, in verse 15, as he's leaving those who are trying to attack him. In the midst of his burdens, in the midst of everything else, he stops and says, oh, do you need some healing? Do you need some love? Do you need some compassion? Do you need somebody to point you to hope? Do you need somebody to help answer your questions? Jesus did that for us, and he tells us to do that for us. Once again, whose power are you going to trust? You're going to trust in your own power and your pride, or you're going to trust in an all-powerful God 
to transform you into a person who can be a light to others. Yeah, amen, thank you. <laughs> I can take those cues. <laughs> so, what? I know it's a good one. I was just debating whether I was going to share what I was going to share, and it's really not appropriate, so I won't. I'll tell you, I'll tell it next week um, at the baptism. Um, <laughs> which is the fourth time I mentioned the baptisms. <laughs> so nobody will be here next week, and we would love all of you to come. Kathy and her team is going to be cooking, and it'll all be farm-fresh eggs. It won't all be farm-fresh eggs. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, we could say it this way. We could say it this way. Anybody who normally gets eggs here... Just pay them for the eggs, and, that'll, and then we can use those eggs next week. <laughs> so, Father, I do praise you and thank you for this day, and I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to serve you. And Lord, there's so many trials that we go through, uh, and the amazing thing is that some, many of those trials are self-inflicted, and others are just inflicted by a society that doesn't care. But whatever, whether they're self-inflicted self or other-inflicted, you care for us. You're compassionate. You're a healer. You love us. You forgive us. You call us righteous. You provide a hope for us. And sometimes it's just hard for us to Grasp that in the midst of everything that is, else is going on. So help us as individuals. Help us as people. Help us as people who are sitting across from others at our table to be able to remind each other on a regular basis of the hope that you have provided for us and that we are to share that hope with others and that we are introduce others into your saving knowledge. We thank you. We praise you. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.